Last week, Daniel described to us in the beginning of chapter 11 the scene when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the cot with his disciples. And we saw the people laying down their cloaks and the branches from the trees and they're singing, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we looked at Jesus' claim to be the Messiah as he fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah, riding in on the cot. And the people, they make their claim that Jesus is the Messiah too by their singing and their shouting. But then we got to the end of the passage and we read verse 11 and we thought, it seems a bit of an anticlimax. He comes into the city, Jesus enters Jerusalem, into the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And we got that feeling that by looking at the bigger picture of Mark's gospel, Although people are starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they were still a misunderstanding. They didn't quite know what that truly meant and what Jesus was going to do. And as we go through our passage this evening, and as we look at the next couple of chapters, really, we, we see Jesus interacting with the, the religious leaders. And we know that they, the religious leaders, particularly don't believe in Jesus. They've already rejected him as the Messiah. And so now we see Jesus as he interacts with them, answers their questions. We see his response to them and his judgment upon them. His judgment upon unbelieving Israel. Now, as we read the passage, as you heard it, there may well have been a few things that raised your eyebrows. Well, what's going on there? Some questions that you may have. And there's a lot to unpack in this passage. We're not going to cover it all. I'm mainly going to look at verses 12 through to 25, but we will touch on the other bits. Um, But maybe you have those questions. Maybe you're not a Christian and you read something like this and you you know people say Jesus is good and nice and kind, but yet there are things he says in this passage that perhaps could question that. Well, I hope that as we go through it, these things will become clearer. So let's dive straight in. Verse 12. So the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing the distance of the fig tree, he went out to find if it had any fruit on it. So Jesus is in in Bethany, a village outside the the city. That's where he's staying. It's Passover time. The city is busy. People from all over the place have come to, to worship, to celebrate the festival, to make sacrifices, to celebrate Passover. And so you're going to have travelers from all over Israel and even beyond all coming upon Jerusalem. So you can imagine all the hotels are full, all the B&Bs have their no vacancy sign outside, just like they always do in this country too. And um, there's people everywhere. The hillsides are filled with tents and caravans and uh, people are here to celebrate the great festival. So it's now Monday morning. Okay, Jesus walks back to Jerusalem and he's hungry doesn't really matter why he's hungry, it's not the point. But he's hungry and he sees in the distance this fig tree. The fig tree is in leaf. So, is he expecting some fruit? Well, he goes over expecting fruit, but doesn't find any. Now, if you look into your kind of history and geography and things, you find out that at this time of year, around April, fig trees would start to have leaves on them. The very beginning of figs beginning to grow. And so there were leaves there. And so maybe there were signs that there would be figs. 
But in verse 13, Mark says that it wasn't the season for figs yet. They don't come until May, June, sometimes a little bit later. So we ask the question, why does Jesus go to the tree expecting fruit, find none, and then curse the tree for not doing its job? Jesus goes to the tree, finds no fruit, and so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Poor fig tree. Is that a bit harsh? A bit vindictive of Jesus? Well, we need to know a little bit more about fig trees to solve our problem. Now, of course, it wasn't the season for real ripe figs, but it was the season for little fig nodules, which would have started to appear on the tree. They're not as nice as proper figs, of course, but they are still edible. And Jesus probably was expecting these little nodules to be on the tree that he could go and pick and, and eat. But he doesn't find any. And so some people think that because there was no nodules, that perhaps the tree was diseased and it had some kind of problem. And that's why it wasn't producing what it should have produced. And so by the time May, June comes, it's not actually ever going to bear fruit. It's almost as good as dead. And so Jesus curses this tree because it's not bearing fruit. It's not doing, it's not going to do the job that it's supposed to do. Now, we'll come back to what all that means in a moment. This, is, this passage here is another one of the examples of that sandwich that Mark does. He has one story sandwiched in between two bits of story, the fig tree. And so the lesson that Jesus is going to teach from the cursing of the fig tree we'll come back to later. But first, Jesus needs his disciples to experience what's going to happen in the temple. So let's have a look at what happens in the temple. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the courts. And he taught them and said, Is it not written, My house will be called a prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Remember, Jesus has already been into the temple courts while he's been in Jerusalem. He did that the day before. And so what did he see? Verse 11, he went in and looked around and then he walked away. What he hoped to see, what he should have seen, was a big, large space. About 35 acres was the outer temple courts. That's pretty big. A space that's dedicated for Gentiles, those that aren't Jews, those who can't go any further inside the temple. It's a space for them to worship God, to pray. And so you'd expect it to be quiet, perhaps, and, and holy. It's a place where teaching went on, where spiritual things happened. But as Jesus enters the temple courts that day, <clears throat> he sees tables filled with animals for sale. The noise and the commotion, the smell of animals being sold. People using the temple courts as a kind of a shortcut to get to the other side. The typical marketplace, right there in the middle of the temple courts. 
Picture your average Saturday market, you've got stalls, hustles and hustle and bustle, bargaining is going on, lots of people around buying and selling. The local bureau to exchange is busy because all the foreigners are coming to exchange their money for the local currency. It's past labor time. We'd expect that sort of thing to go on. People have come to make sacrifices in the temple. They're celebrating Passover. Jews have come from all over the place, all over the, the country and, and, the, and the known world. And so they're not, they're not going to bring their own animals with them. They're going to buy them there. They're foreigners. They have foreign money. So they're going to want to exchange their money. So all these things are, 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 going, to, are going to go on. And that's not necessarily wrong. But... Is he right that you should use the temple courts for this place? Turning a place that's supposed to be for God, for prayer, for worship, into the covered market. That's the question, that's the problem that Jesus is addressing. And so he's angry, rightly angry, that the Jews are abusing the temple courts. And so he drives them all out. And he's doing it with great authority. And you can imagine him doing all this, turning over the tables. He's not stopped. How much of it he did, we don't really know. But he has great authority here. He's speaking from the word of God. He's speaking from his own authority, of course. And he's teaching them what their error is. What does he say in verse 17? Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. My house, the temple, the place where God dwells, the place where God comes to meet with his people, it's a house of prayer. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, Isaiah 56. And Isaiah is prophesying a day when the nations will come to worship God. And they will bring their offerings and their praise. Then they keep God's laws and they seem to want to obey God. Then they will be a blessed. They'll be accepted by God. He's talking about Gentiles and foreigners and non-Jews who will come and be, will find joy in the presence of the Lord. And as they make their offerings, they'll be accepted. Verse 7 says, because my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. This is the prophecy that Isaiah has that of what Israel should be, a light to the nations, a place where one day all nations will be welcome to become part of God's people. But instead of the temple courts being such a place, Jesus describes it as a den of robbers. He's quoting again, this time from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, is preaching in a day where God's people have been exiled and he's casting judgment. God is judging the people for their false worship. People who are giving lip service to God but yet their lives are just denying God. They come to the temple to worship and find safety in God, protection from their sin because of the sacrifices they make but yet they just live however they want outside in the world. Jeremiah says this in chapter 7, verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, 
and say we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. A den of robbers, a place, a hidden place where those who have stolen goods can go and, and hide them and find safety. It's a picture of the spiritual state. Who's living in a certain way, living against God, living how they want, but yet running to God for protection, thinking that because we're in God, it's okay, we can get away with the bad things that we've done. But it's false worship. You often hear the prophets saying that you, know, you do all these things, but yet your sacrifices are not acceptable to me because your heart is far from me. And so in the same way here we have the religious people, the Jews, coming, living how they want outside the temple, but yet coming to profess worship to God, claiming to be his people. But really, as Jesus says, elsewhere, people show lip service to God, but yet their hearts are far (coughs) from me. The sellers and the money exchanges they weren't primarily ripping people off in the temple. That, that might well happen. But they're conducting their religion. They're just sharing no respect to God and his, his place. You've heard already about the religious leaders particularly. You're creating their own rules. Their own laws. Rejecting the Messiah. The greatest of all their errors. And so Jesus' conclusion it's confirmed by those religious leaders themselves. They come and they question him and they, they look for a way to kill him. Because they fear him. They fear the crowd that they're going to follow this man. And this man is wrong. He's a blasphemer. He needs to die. At the end of a passage, they come to Jesus after all of this and they question his authority. Not because they want to know and, and accept it. Because they won't. They're not even prepared to say what John's baptism is. They've come to their verdict. And so Jesus has too. He overturns the tables and he leaves the temple. And he leaves the city. And he'll do that a a few times during this week. Physically but yet spiritually turning his back on the temple. We'll see that in chapter 13. Judging Israel for their unbelief. The people who show outward signs of being spiritual, the great temple, coming, making sacrifices, but yet living unfruitful lives, like an unfruitful tree. There's no prayer, there's no obedience, there's no holiness. There's no witnessing to God's, to, to the foreign people. And so that brings us back to our fig tree. <coughs> the next day, so this is now Tuesday, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. <coughs> they take the same route as they did the day before, and there they pass the fig tree. Peter sees the fig tree and notices that it's withered from the roots, completely destroyed, so it will never bear fruit. And he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. 
And so this is Jesus' opportunity to, to teach them a lesson, the lesson of the fig tree. And he says that what he's saying is outward religion is unfruitful. The outward religion of the religious leaders in Jerusalem is unfruitful. It's not following me. You see, the fig tree in the Old Testament is a symbol of, of Israel. There are a few times that God, as he's giving prophecies to his prophets, describes Israel as figs and fig trees. And sometimes it's in, ju- it's in judgment. Jesus cursing the fig tree here in the New Testament is a symbol of that, a symbol of what will happen to Israel, to God's nation. A sign of judgment. Yes, of course, Jesus has come to, to save his people. He'll do that by dying on the cross. But he's <coughs> bringing judgment upon his people for their unbelief, for their rejection of who he is. And this scene, the temple of them buying and selling and abusing that, that place is, is just a symptom of the deeper problems that are going on of God's people. As they show plenty of signs of life. Lots of leaves on the trees. Yet really, deep down, there's no fruit. They're dead. As Christians, we know that the sacrificial system, all that went on in the temple, is, was just a temporary fix for the true problem of sin. The sacrificing an animal was never going to pay for someone's sin. We needed a human sacrifice. We needed Jesus to die, the Son of God, to take the punishment of sin upon himself. And we know that that will happen. Jesus will die upon the cross meaningfully, purposefully, to bring forgiveness to those who believe in him. But as Christians who know all that and have received all that, it can be very easy for us to accept it, but then take it for granted. To abuse the gift of grace that God has given to us. Sometimes we treat the Lord Jesus and we treat his grace like the Jews treated the temple. Like den of robbers. We can, like God's people did in Jerusalem that day, take God's protection, know that he has saved us by his grace, but then just abuse his love and use it as a license for us to go on sinning and we take light of our sin. Yes, we're saved by grace, but sometimes we can just be a bit too lax with our sin. We can be full of outward signs of religion. We go to church and we go to home group and we join a team and we serve the church. But are we really bearing fruit in our Christian lives? We confess our sin, we sing songs of praise, we respond to the sermon with a yes, Lord. But sometimes life doesn't change, we don't move on, we don't bear fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit as a Christian? It's all about discipleship that we've been thinking about. But growing in Christ, becoming more like him, displaying the fruit of the Holy Spirit, humbly serving him, sacrificially giving, witnessing to the world around us, prayer, communing, having a relationship with our God. And as we do these things, we bear fruit. Are these things visible in your Christian life as you live day by day?
If Jesus were to come into your life like he was in the temple and to have a look around to see what he should see, he wants to see some fruit. Would he see fruit or would he just see leaves? Our religion is, is unfruitful. We need to stop kidding ourselves that by just by giving lip service to God that that is all okay. Yes, we are saved by grace. But the Lord Jesus wants us to follow him and to bear fruit for him. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you see your life as being fruitful before God because you live a good life and you don't do really bad things. And perhaps you don't consider yourself religious, but you say, if there was a God, then surely he would let me into heaven because my good outweighs my bad. Well, first of all, we know that that is not true because we need Jesus. There needs to be a, a price for our sin. And Jesus paid that upon the cross. By trusting in our own works, it will get us nowhere. We need to trust in his grace. But when we receive his grace, it's not treated like a den of robbers. Living our one way, and hoping that our good motives cancel and outweigh our bad. The disciples are amazed at Jesus' condemnation of, of this, and his power to kill this tree so quickly. And they're perhaps left thinking, what does this mean? They would have known about the fig tree in the Old Testament, what it means, and they'll be perhaps asking questions. If the temple is no longer good enough, what left? And so Jesus says, have faith in God. Live by faith. Trust him who is faithful. Don't live your Christian lives independent from God, but trust him for everything. Faith in God, Godward faith, is fruitful. Jesus was, no, Jews, Jews, Israel, sorry, Israel was unfruitful because they didn't pray, they didn't bear witness, they didn't live repentant life, they abused God's grace. But a fruitful life, does the opposite. A fruitful life grows in holiness, grows in faith. It bears witness to God in the world. It kills off sin and it prays. Fruitful lives pray because we are in a relationship with our living God through Jesus. You pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is absent from the temple and so Jesus takes an opportunity now to focus on prayer. It does feel a little bit like a sudden tangent off to a different topic. But it's an opportunity as he too shows them, look, yes, I have the power to kill this fig tree. Yeah, I have the power to do great things. If you would trust me, if you believe in me, if you follow me, if you have faith. And so as we come towards the end, let's focus on a little bit on that. As Jesus teaches living by faith and trusting him in prayer. Verse 23, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, that does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it. 
and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now there is a whole sermon just in those verses. And we're not going to be able to dig very deep. And I hope I don't open a big can of worms. But (laughs) Jesus is teaching his disciples here the effectiveness of faith in prayer. He says, when you pray in faith, believe God will answer. Don't doubt, trust him, and the answer will come. It seems that Jesus is saying, pray for anything, and it will happen. God can do the impossible. So he illustrates it with this hyperbolic example of casting a mountain into the dead, into the sea. You can imagine the disciples who are probably standing at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and they can see the Dead Sea just in the distance, and they're thinking, wow, a mountain into the sea? God can do anything. God is able. Whatever you ask, don't doubt. Believe that it's done, and it will be done. How do you feel about that? Does that make you uncomfortable? Does that match your experience? Are all your prayers answered with a yes? Is it true that I can pray for a Ferrari and by faith I will receive it? What is Jesus saying? Well, I think there's a yes and a no to this. I think no in two ways. So firstly, he isn't saying whatever without qualification. He doesn't here, unfortunately, but this does come up in other parts of the Gospels. And Jesus does qualify what he means. And he often talks about praying according to God's will. Praying in Jesus' name. God's will revealed in the Bible God's will to us is well it's it's God's will and we pray according to his will he will answer but secondly he will answer yes according to his will but also in his way and in his time and so sometimes when we pray we can expect a certain response or we expect the answer to be in a certain way We need to believe and trust that Jesus knows best. And so sometimes the right answer, that God will, he always answers prayer. But often it's not, or sometimes it's not the way that we like or expect. Sometimes he answers in a better way than we could imagine. So for example, we pray for the fruit of the Spirit. Patience. That classic missing fruit of the Spirit in many people's lives. But God's answer is not going to be zap. There's patience for you. But the way he'll answer often is he'll give you a difficult situation to endure. Maybe we pray for God to provide our needs, to provide a job for us, perhaps. We don't get a job that we've gone for, that we prayed for. Has God not answered our prayer? Is he not powerful enough to do it? God has a will and a purpose for us. Yes, that can be a bit vague and unhelpful. But he does, and he knows it, and we need to trust him. Trust his ways and trust his timing. We can speak to many people who have gone for jobs and have missed, missed their opportunity, but yet God has done something better. There's been something better around the corner. What about healing? God can heal, of course. He has all the power to, to heal. And sometimes he does, and it's great to hear testimonies of those who have been healed. But sometimes he doesn't heal. Does that mean we have no faith? 
Does that mean God doesn't want us to be healed? It was really helpful this morning. I love Oxford. A lady was sharing a testimony of how God had healed her and delivered her from demonic oppression. And then at the end, Charlie cleverly qualified it all by saying, yes, God has the power to do all this, yet sometimes he chooses not to. Sometimes he will do greater things through people's suffering and illness. And that's true. God can heal and we should expect him to heal, but, but sometimes he chooses to do his, fulfill his will in, in other ways. And so sometimes it, it's hard. We come and we read a passage like this and we, we think, well, how do I pray? God is powerful. He can do great things. He can move mountains into the, dead, into the sea. How do we pray according to his will and trusting in him? <clears throat> as we grow, as we study his word and get to know him better, as we get to know his character, get to know his will, his purposes, the way that he works. We hope and pray that as we develop as Christians, we learn more about what it means to pray according to God's will. And our prayers will become more shaped into God, God's will prayers. And so having Ferrari is not necessarily bad. But are there other ways that our money can be used to give God the glory? How does it change and affect our prayers? Now, there's probably lots of more questions that we have about all this. And we don't have time to unpack it now. But this verse like this does come up again in John's Gospel. And we'll be looking at part of John's Gospel in the summer. So come back in the summer and maybe we'll touch on that again. Um, but it's an important topic and uh, this has raised questions for you if there are things you prayed for in your life that have not worked out and you don't understand then don't walk away talk to people, pray about it further and understand and trust the Lord but then okay, the final thing Jesus says is about our attitude in prayer that we need to have an attitude of forgiveness yes to be right before God and then right between one another too. Bitterness and hatred, resentment, hard-heartedness are, are prayer blockers. We've received the greatest answer to prayer of our salvation. We've had forgiveness of sins, yet if we're not willing to forgive others, why should we receive from God the answer to our prayers? And so Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. The forgiveness of sins is the most important thing that we can pray for. It's a thing that makes a difference for eternity. And so we need to be forgiving ourselves with one another. Our religion is unfruitful. It doesn't recognize Jesus in it. It doesn't accept his salvation and it abuses his grace. We can show all the signs of godliness. We can have all the leaves on the tree. Yet really there is deadness. Faith in God, trusting him for everything, following him, growing in him, that is what bears fruit. 
So trusting in Jesus for our salvation, but they're living for him, praying and serving the Lord and bearing witness to the world. Bears fruits for God's kingdom as his kingdom grows.